This podcast was produced by Morley Radio. Welcome to Artcast Season 3, Episode 1. You can now listen to previous series on streaming platforms such as Spotify and Apple. Just search Artcast Morley Radio. Today, I'll be joined by one of our fashion diploma students, Inigo Farah, and one of our HE Access to Creative Industries students, Evelina Yakaliva. I'm also really excited to welcome Polly Morgan with us, where we will delve into a range of topics, including taxidermy, casting, being a professional artist, and managing income as an artist. Polly Morgan is a British artist living and working in London. She's self-taught with no formal education in art. She works with taxidermy, concrete, and polyurethane. She's interested in creating deceptions with sculptural facsimiles made from painted casts and skin as a way of exploring false narratives in our increasingly polarised and digitised society. In 2001, she was the winner of the Royal Society of Sculptures' first Plinth Public Art Award. In 2016, she was selected by Melvin Bragg to design and create 13 awards for the winners of the Sky South Bank Art Awards. And in 2014, she was selected to represent Britain in Women to Watch 2015 at the National Museum of Women in the Arts in Washington, D.C. Um, but the first question I ask all the guests is, what is your favourite colour and why is that? I mean, I wouldn't really be able to isolate it to one colour, but I, when my son asks me, I say orange. And that's probably because it was my favourite colour as a child. And I find I still like to wear it or see it in pictures and things around the house. But uh, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I think it's hard to have a favourite colour as an artist. I'm using different colours all the time. It depends. Uh, I'm painting a lot more now. Um, so it's more about colour combinations for me that um, I, I like to explore rather than one isolated colour. Okay. Um, could you tell us a little bit how you first got into taxidermy? Uh, what was the first animal you worked with? And if you can recommend any ways for people to try it out? Sure. Um, I started, well, I had my very first lesson when I was 24. I think I just turned 24, so 2004 that was. Um, I was still working in a bar and restaurant that I'd worked, I'd sort of helped fund my way through university at in um, Shoreditch in East London. And uh, I was just sort of trying to figure out what I was going to do next, really, because I'd graduated and I'd been offered the job of managing the bar, which was quite a good kind of way of procrastinating a bit longer. Um, and I was, I just found in, in any free time I had, I was always drawing or like I'd have I had a bag of clay in my flat and I used to just sculpt with it and I went on a photography course I I should have gone to art school but I didn't go to art school um so if I had I'm sure I would have found an outlet for the creativity but I hadn't at that point um and I was essentially I just wanted I, I was talking to a friend about stuff I wanted to see around my flat and I wanted I was explaining that I would quite like to have a dead bird on the windowsill like a taxidermy bed, dead bird and uh, they said well why don't you buy one and I said well I can't I, I've looked and I can't and anyway taxidermy is very expensive and two I, they don't do them dead they always make them look alive and they said well why don't you do it yourself and 
I really hadn't occurred to me at that point that I could do it myself. And that there was still, I felt like taxidermy was a, was sort of something that had died out some, you know, in the Victorian times, because I'd never met a taxidermist. Um, but then I did a little research. This was like very early days of the internet. So I think I borrowed a friend's laptop and started Googling. And everything kept leading me to America. And um, this is the whole kind of hunting trophy thing is much bigger over there. Uh, and eventually I just found a very basic website popped up with a guy in Scotland called George Jamieson, who's a taxidermist. He's been doing it for about 40 years, so probably 60 years now. Um, and he, uh, I, I called him and I just explained that I wanted to have a lesson and was it possible because he was in Edinburgh and I, I had a friend who lived in Edinburgh, so I felt that was kind of a feasible place to visit. And he said, yeah, sure, come up and see me and um, I'll get a bird for you. I said, I was very specific about wanting a pigeon the first time because I loved pigeons. They were very unpopular in London. I was always their only advocate, I felt. Um, and then when I got to Scotland and explained to him what I wanted, he said, uh, no, I'm not going to let you do it dead because uh, you need to learn how to make it look alive first. And then it's much easier to then make it look dead once you've, you've done the kind of hard part. Uh, so that's what I did. Oh, and in terms of recommending it to other people, um, I feel like now it, it would be so much easier to learn just by, I'm sure there's very good YouTube um, instruct tutorials now. There was no such thing when I was young. I remember buying, I bought a really very difficult to decipher homemade book on, uh, on uh, like Amazon as it then was, or, or eBay or something, I think, where some taxidermist had made it, literally made it himself, just sort of written and, 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 and bound it. And it was so difficult to follow because I'd never even skinned a bird at that point. So I really didn't know what he was talking about. But yeah, I, I imagine it would actually be perfectly possible to, to teach yourself with online tutorials. So what did you study? If you, you mentioned you didn't go to art school. So what was your sort of educational route? Um, I studied English literature um, at Queen Mary College in London. Uh, just really because I, I was quite good academically at school but my interests were always much more creative I and mean, for a while I did drama which was quite which seems very odd to me now because I have had no real interest in it ever since I certainly wouldn't want to act uh, but that was what I ended up kind of doing for eight levels I think along with English and history and then I just found myself in a position where I couldn't apply for art school anyway because I didn't have an art A level and I wanted to come to London so I uh, studied English and I did turn up to my most of my uh, lessons but I got very little out of it really I, I, I found I, I, I'm in touch with no one from those days and I, I made all my friends and all my um, influences came through this bar that I worked at throughout university I didn't even turn up to pick up my graduation certificate. What's the sort of uh, favorite animals you sort of work with and I was wondering if you could talk about any other artistic processes you've worked with? Um, well again favorite animals that uh, depends a lot on what I'm working on at the time I mean obviously Right now, if you look at the work I'm making, I'm, I, I work almost exclusively with snakes at the moment. So that's what I'm most interested in. And I um, spend a lot of time looking at images. I find looking through nature books and just referencing images online, looking for certain patterns or color combinations that, that work for me at that given moment. Um, uh, what was the other question? Oh, the other things that I've... Well, I've, I've had to learn a lot of other skills along the way. I mean... I'm not sure you probably know more about this than I would, but um, from the students I've had who've um, come and 
done uh, back in the day I used to do internships or sometimes I've had people come and help me out for the odd day uh, work experience and stuff they they seem to say that they don't actually learn a lot of practical stuff at art college now um, and I so I, though I went through a phase of sort of regret that I hadn't gone to art college because I felt I would have been able to explore all these different materials but I'm not sure whether or not that's the case now anyway but I have had to whenever I've wanted to make something well, whenever I've hit a wall creatively, like I've got something in mind that I want to make, but I can't physically make it. I can't work out how to make it or I don't know the materials or I, I, you know, I just don't have the skills. I tend to find someone. I always seem to have found somebody by just sort of approaching people um, and asking the right questions and making friends, I guess, and just kind of working alongside them and, and having kind of very very informal, loose kind of apprenticeships with people. So I've done that over the years uh, in order to uh, uh, learn uh, moulding and casting, mm. which I do quite a lot of. I think a lot of educators are trying to bring that more skills-based teaching yeah, a bit I mean, back. Yeah. I think that's definitely something I'm keen on rather than just having the sort of academic tutorials, having a real like range of skills that are being taught. Yeah, yeah um, well, I, the reason that I've always made all my own work, um, even it's not even the benefit of the work. I, I could get the work made better elsewhere by experts, but I've always wanted to make it myself because in the process of like working with the materials, I always learned so much, not just about the materials, but just about what I'm making. And every time I finish one sculpture, it's always somehow led me to the next one or it's prompted an idea or sometimes I've made, there's been a, an accident that's worked out in my favor. And all of those things you lose if you're not actually handling the stuff yourself I think you just you know you could do a drawing and pass it on to someone but you will get back exactly what you drew um, and you won't have made those discoveries in the process. Um, going back to what you were saying earlier I've literally just just looked up how to taxidermy on YouTube. Um, Millions and, I'm sure. <clears throat> oh, yeah no it's it's yeah. the first thing is an article by the Guardian taxidermy for beginners and then it's someone it's how to taxidermy a squirrel on what looks like a countertop. Yeah. Uh, and a person's taxidermying a pigeon in a bar. And um, why don't we taxidermy humans? Probably because you just shouldn't. Why don't we? Uh, well, on a very practical level, uh, you do depend on the feathers and the fur and birds and mammals to cover the skin when you, when you mount them. Skin doesn't dry. It, yeah, it's... Uh, you have to wait when you've mounted a new specimen you then wait for it to dry and that can take weeks sometimes months on the large things there's so much water content in the skin that has to evaporate out do you have to like cure the animal or is it a, a sort you, of just a you yeah you turn the skin before you mount it so you effectively turning it into leather if it's a mammal if it's a bird it's a lot simpler if they've got very papery skins once you strip all of the um fat off them then you can just apply a kind of salt solution um, and they, they generally will last. I mean, the big enemy is moths, actually, that attack the feathers or the fur because the larvae feed on the keratin in the fur. And that's when you get these very nasty-looking pieces of taxidermy where it looks like it's sort of been eaten away. So do you have um, to keep them in sort of a plastic bag or, or do you have like an airtight room or how does that all sort of um, work? Well, it, I mean, all of the specimens are in the freezer until I mount them. But then once I mount it, once I've finished a piece, then... Um, yeah, I, it would be more sensible to put it under glass or something, um, although moths can still get, unless you have an absolute vacuum in there, moths can actually get in through pretty much anything. Even if you have a glass dome or something, they, they can get underneath it, and they do. Um, there's no foolproof way of 
getting rid of moths. <clears throat> Uh, back in the Victorian times, they used to use arsenic in the um, treatment of the skins, but it ended up killing off loads of taxidermists as well as moths, so they had to stop doing that. So that's kind of banned now, um, but it was very effective uh, and for a long time, which is why a lot of Victorian taxidermists lasted quite well, because um, it had arsenic in the skin. Right. Nice. But yeah, humans, they would look terrible. I mean, they would look horrible because the skin would go very parched and sort of papery looking and... Um, that's what a silicon cast of a human is a much more effective. If you actually want um, something that looks lifelike, then you would be much better off going for that. And actually, this is one of the reasons I'm now painting directly onto casts of snakes rather than using the skins, because they don't have feathers and fur. Um, and the skins, when they dry, they some of them, if the very thin, fine ones can dry quite nicely, but mostly they, they lose the color and the patterns and all of the iridescence. And they lose that kind of plump, smooth look and they become quite kind of rough looking um, and then I found I was spending a lot of time sanding and painting and varnishing and just trying to get that look back and never quite achieving it not to my satisfaction anyway um, um, well, when I cast something and paint directly onto it then I, I find it's a lot more lifelike. So are you, are you casting snakes out of silicon in that case or, or what are you using? No not silicon uh, I'm using well right this minute hence the gloves, I've been casting them in fiberglass, um, but I also use polyurethane. Uh, I'm making an outdoor sculpture at the moment, so fiberglass is the best thing for that. Um, but you can use a variety of materials. Silicon, is, it's a real skill learning to paint silicon. It's quite tricky. Uh, it's not something that I've done. And I'm, I, I generally, uh, I use a combination of acrylics and oils and different sometimes transfers on top of the scales and varnishes and things. And you've got a sort of movement in silicon, which I don't, you don't want with those paints because they'll crack. Yeah, so there's that real element of trompe l'oeil, isn't there, where you're replicating the colours of the snake with paints. Yeah, and it's, it's been great, actually, because it's meant that by ditching the skins, I've now, um, I can make work that I can show outside, which is a completely new thing for me. Um, means I can use different materials, scale up. I can also... Um, I can also, uh, I, I, I cast, I use the same snake bodies over and over again because I'm making different molds out of the same bodies. So if I have a particularly nice skin on one, I can use that multiple times. I can also, I'm not limited as well to the pattern um, on the snake that I have. I can, I've got loads of reference books. So I ideally, I mean, it's great to have the actual snake in front of you when you're painting it as a reference. But um, since I own, I'm quite limited to what I get given, I, I often look in books and copy others. So, so do you have? Do you just have a snake sort of sitting around for for molding purposes, or, or? not? Well, I have lots. I've got two freezers, um, and one of them is completely full of snakes. The other's got a few bits and pieces in. Um, so I've got different sizes, different. Uh, they're all they're, they're, there's different profiles, but if you were to sort of do a cross section of a snake, they've got different shape. You get very tubular ones, quite flat ones. Do you have um, a snake of preference or? There's, there's these beautiful green tree pythons that um, I'm quite keen on doing. They've got a really nice, they have this sort of their cross section sort of quite nice like that and uh, an almond shaped. And the way they, they, their bodies kind of move and wrap around things is, is very beautiful. Um, but a lot of the time, any all snakes are incredible. If, if you can get a very fresh specimen um, where there's been no dehydrating in the skin um, and the, the scales are in good condition, then uh, they all, you know, they're all beautiful in, the, in a different way. Although uh, there are vipers, I don't have any vipers. I don't work with poisonous, with like uh, ones with um, 
serious venom yeah um but they i've got something very similar that's got similar shaped scales that i can use to replicate that i mean for the art car boot first series that you had there was some quite playful links between the different colored snakes you were using and then imagery from um like certain outfits within the world of fashion as well Mm. so my question is the animals that you use do you source them yourself or do they get donated to you a bit of both actually i do get people I quite regularly, I have people emailing me just to say, my cat's just bought this in and it's so beautiful and I don't want it to go to waste or, um, you know, they find something on the side of the road. Uh, but if it's something very specific, like the snakes, obviously people don't come across snakes in this country much. Um, so I generally have got, a, I, I mean, I did, I say I've got a network. I haven't really got a network anymore because I haven't been in touch with them much, but I'm starting to put feelers out again at the moment because I'm looking for a very, very big snake. Um, I tend to just try and kind of get familiar with different like breeders, um, rescue centers. There's quite a rescue centers have been quite helpful because um, obviously they, they take in snakes that have been dumped and abandoned and some of them don't make it. Um, it's surprising actually how many people who work with snakes have them in the freezer because they can't just chuck them away. They don't tend to just bury them. They, they incinerate them in kind of batches. So if you're a snake breeder um, and something dies, you would just put it in the freezer and then you might, then do that two, three, four times until you've got a few. Uh, they all die natural causes. Um, I'm not interested in working in anything that hasn't. Um, but you find that the people who work with these animals are extremely um, devoted to them anyway. So I, I, there's not really any danger of that. And what's your client base like? The people who purchase your work? They're just kind of regular art buyers, really. I don't, I, it's hard to, it would be difficult to define them as a group because they are very varied. Um, I'd say they're pretty 50-50 mixed male-female. Although whenever one one person buys my work, they always tell me that their husband or wife hates it and that they're going to have to smuggle it in somehow. So, but that, that's male or female. Um, they're not taxidermy buyers, really. I don't I don't sell to people who collect taxidermy because I think I've got very, um, the aesthetic's very different and it's very much a sculpture as opposed to a piece of taxidermy, which is, Generally, people who buy taxidermy, they're wildlife enthusiasts and they're very keen to have the kind of natural environment of the animal mimicked in a cabinet or something. And they, they want, you know, as lifelike an animal as possible, which is um, not something I'm always that interested in. So so in that case, do you then consider what what you do to be your way of, of sort of revering these animals? In, in, as in sort of you, you take something that was once alive and now, now isn't and, and you... Mm. Not not improve, but change its Definitely situation. Um, yeah, I, I see. I mean, you know, I, I see what you're saying, and I, I yes, I I definitely would say that I'm trying to honour them rather than disrespect. And there's an argument in taxidermy. The people who are very opposed to taxidermy, the argument is that you're disrespecting the animal. But aren't you just giving it new life, though? Well, I, there's there's lots of yeah. I mean, I would say that. We, that's to kind of foist human emotions onto an animal. Animals are very, you know, they're all different and they don't, most of them don't mourn their dead in the way that we do. Um, crows, you know, there's animals will feed off other dead animals um, very frequently. And I don't think that to make, take a dead body out of the ecosystem. I mean, I even sometimes with the, the bodies that I remove, I put them back out there for other animals to eat if I'm doing it in the country. Um, so I don't really... I don't have much time for the argument of respect because I think we should spend a lot more, we should put our energies into respecting living things really um, while they're here and worry about what we, how we treat living animals. Um, 
but uh, yes, in terms, of, I, I try to honour them as best I can. That's that's all I can say. I think that really ba- badly done taxidermy. I know it's very. I know everyone. Crap taxidermy is great. I know. I know the book. Yeah, I got tagged <laughs> so many times. I'm luckily I'm not really on Facebook, but I have a profile I set up years ago, and I've when I finally went, I logged back in for some reason because someone had sent me something. <clears throat> I found that about. 200 people had tagged me in this crap taxidermy book on there, which I was a bit insulted by. It looked like I I was in, I was included. I wasn't, luckily. I thought um, walruses are the, the yeah, most trickiest the ones. They end up just looking like a massive beach ball. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand why people maybe could be a little offended by not doing it well. But um, at the same time, to become a good taxidermist, you have to practice and you're going to have some dodgy specimens along the way. Mm. Um, going back to the process of casting, I was wondering if you had any sort of tips for students because I think it's such an exciting process and we do processes with the students where we use alginate moulds or uh, like clay moulds and all kinds of like silicon as well. Um, but like in terms of your work, it's it's incredibly like detailed and I was wondering if you had any tips of how to like optimise the results in that process. Um, well, it does depend a lot on the on what you're using um but recently no, not that long ago actually i was someone gave me a tip which i hadn't known it's probably very well widely known with people who do it regularly but um putting talcum powder in the mold before you cast something out um is incredibly effective at getting rid of those tiny little surface air bubbles that changed my life actually when i started doing that because i found before that even if i had a very a great mold I would always have these tiny, tiny, tiny little bubbles, which I would be trying to fill, and it was almost impossible. Um, so that's been a good tip. What else? Um, well, yeah, just prepare. Just take your time before you do the mold. My, and I say that as someone who really rushes things, and I've had to learn the hard way so many times just not to rush it. Um, even set everything up, get everything prepared, and then even come back to it the following day if you can, because... Um, you'll probably think of something when you're going to sleep that you haven't done. There's so many times I'll have built a box or something or other around it and then poured in the rubber and a seam has split somewhere and it's flooding out. And you just, it's all about the preparation, really. You can spend hours and hours and hours on the preparation and then the mold making itself should be very quick, but it won't be very quick if you haven't prepared properly and you'll waste loads of material. What tree personality traits would you say help you with succeeding in the taxidermy business that you possess? I'm oh, definitely not in the taxidermy business. Um, so do you mean more like art? More your work. But, but yeah, just with my work. Um, perseverance would be one, because I have had many, 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 many failures. Um, what I still do frequently when I'm making things. Um, I don't know what the word to describe the next one would be, but um, patience, I guess. Um, and I don't have a lot of patience naturally, but again, that's something I've had to kind of learn to acquire because to become good at anything, you really, it's true. The whole 10,000 hours thing is true. You really just have to do it over and over again. I, I would say I'm definitely not a natural taxidermist or, um, even painter, probably, um, all the things that I do, I don't think I have a natural flair for. Would you ever make NFTs? Uh, I have made an NFT actually, one one NFT, yeah, one. Um, I did a collaboration with Hendrix Gin, uh, and I 
uh, last year, uh, no, the early, so last year, probably the end of last year, yeah. And I made a, a short kind of animation. Um, sorry, did you want the third one? I'm just, <laughs> I was talking about patience. I can't think of another one. I'll come back to that maybe. So in that case, you, you, you consider yourself to be an artist first and foremost, and taxidermy is just part of your art? Or, so, so you don't yes. consider yourself to be a taxidermist? No, not really. I mean, I'm not not in a snobby sense at all. I think it would be a, it would actually be insulting to taxidermists to call myself a taxidermist because that's they spend years. Yeah, and they perfecting. try to make animals look alive. And yeah, and I think what I do doing that. I know I know for a fact that some of the taxiderm some taxidermists hate my work, um, and that's because I might chop the legs of a bird or something to make it more streamlined in something, or I frequently chop up snakes to use kind of bits of their bodies in different ways and and the taxidermy is actually one part of a whole there's always other materials in there at the moment I'm casting in concrete and um, using steel called 10 steel so I just think of myself as a sculptor really um, and taxidermy is definitely a part of it um, and casting is a part of it painting is a part of it I just I guess sort of multimedia really but um, I do do I say I do taxidermy but to say I'm a taxidermist kind of suggests that I you could bring me your pet dog and I might do that which I definitely wouldn't do or you know uh, someone from a pheasant shoot could get me to mount up a pheasant for them and I I've never worked in that way at all great and I've only ever shown my work in art galleries so so we talked a lot about the process and the media. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about conceptually what you want to really convey with your work, because I guess a lot of people jump to connotations around death. Uh, but you, a lot of the time you are setting up this sort of combination of animals, for instance, like a stag that would be filled with filled with uh, sleeping bats with an infinite mirror. Um, and there's this sort of like, there's a lot of narrative involved in the work as well. See that. What's that one called? So I'm just gonna, uh, uh, that, what is that one called? Uh, it was from a show called Endless Plains. Hide and Fight, that was called. Hide and Fight. Um, that's a long, yeah, that's a very old word. That's from 10 years ago. So let me think back to that. Uh, in that particular show, well, what I was back then, more so, more than now, I think. Um, I was much more interested in life, really, and in the continuation of life and how death is a kind of necessary part of that. Uh, I've never been, I've never been interested in death. It's not something that interests me or uh, inspires me particularly because it horrifies me as much as the next person. Um, but animals have to die in order for me to use them just logistically. I can't start skinning something and it's still walking around. Um, <laughs> and I shouldn't, wouldn't want to. Um, so... I, I think that with that piece that you mentioned and others that I was making around that time, um, it kind of started off when I, I had to, I, I was asked by the ICA to make a photo, an image of, for an exhibition they were having to mark their 60th anniversary. And I think the theme was tomorrow. And I had, I put out a, a dead bat, blackbird that I had in my freezer and I left it out in the sun for a few days and I came back to find it infested with maggots. And I took some pictures of it um, and I found the pictures quite beautiful. I, I'm sure not everyone did, but they weren't, you know, it wasn't, they weren't intentionally gruesome or anything. There was no kind of blood and guts. They were just this dead bird and they had maggots. They kind of looked like clusters of, sort of pearls on them. And I quite liked the way that the, the dead bird had become a kind of nest really for all these hundreds of new lives. Would you say that you, you, you're inspired by the sort of cyclical nature 
of life exactly in that case, yeah. more so than the death and yeah rebirth. It's, it's about the death and the rebirth as opposed to just the death exactly yeah and how the death is a necessary part of the rebirth and how that body then becomes a kind of nest for the nest living creatures or feeds the you know animals that will go off and bring up their babies and so on yes exactly much more to do with that than, than death but i think um it's difficult because a lot of people they look at tax it's a dead bird or it's a dead fox or whatever it might be so you think death but I, that's not something that i really wanted to dwell on does it affect your personal life and do your family support and what you do um yes, yes they're very supportive uh i think my mom years back when i started doing it was a bit uh just sort of thought maybe it was a little a fad that i'd um grow out of but then she was quite uh taken aback but in a, you know happy i think when it actually meant you know became something a sort of a, a career i suppose in some senses um i, I think that my husband and it is a lot. Uh, we've been together for a long time, for 15, 16 years. But so back when he was my boyfriend years ago, he would um, bulk a bit at finding dead animals in the freezer a lot. But we've kind of graduated now to somewhere where I've got a proper studio with freezers and there's a proper separation. So do you have your own that. designated space? I have my freezer. own. Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. I do. I mean, things do creep up there sometimes if I've had something in the post and I haven't had time to relocate them. But um, but yes, he's, I think he's quite kind of, um, his work's much more... I mean, he's an artist, but it's more desk-based and he's working on a lot of kind of animation and film and other people. Um, and so he's, he, whenever he comes down to the basement studio, he's always a bit like, wow, I can't believe you're really doing all this disgusting stuff. Um, my children are just very normal children who just think that whatever their parents do is completely normal and they haven't, they're not old enough yet to realise that it's a bit weird. Um, have you have you ever considered working with sort of insects and and, and bugs and arthropods and, and stuff like that that's not necessarily you know as as large or mm. feathery as as other things? So like sort of moths uh, large. No, I haven't, and not. I mean, it's just I just work with what's kind of inspiring me, and I, for some reason that's never really inspired me. But I think it's probably to do with the fact that there's not much I can do. You know, like I can't really change with an insect. You don't really taxidermy an insect. I, I think you put them in some fluid or something. Oh yeah, you do. You kind of pickle them, don't you? Yeah. yeah um, and I, I, I have a lot less control over the outcome, I guess. Um, I, that that would be my guess as to why I've never really been inspired by those things. I mean, certainly with snakes, the thing that really um, turned me onto them originally was just the fact that they are long and thin and malleable and you can almost use them to sculpt you can you can make forms with their bodies um and i would never be able to do that with an insect yeah because you're like contorting them to fit within polystyrene yeah. packaging sort of like having this claustrophobic yeah, sort of feel to them and sort of like look at you've been recently looking at like social media and the covid pandemic i guess and thinking mm. about this sort of like is it right there's like a similarity between this the skins and surfaces of the snakes and uh like like nail veneers is that right yeah, well, I I had to. I ended up looking a lot, uh, looking into nail art quite a lot when I was um, painting snakes because I'm always looking for different paint techniques because uh, snake skins are, are really incredible. When you, I don't know how familiar you are with them, but um, most of them, certainly the bellies, um, have this iridescence over the entire um, body or just the belly, um, but it's. It's a it's a transparent scale that sort of sits on top of the scale that has this rainbow-like effect when it's held in light. 
And that's extremely difficult, if not impossible, to replicate in paint. You can get these rainbow paints, but they tend, they have a kind of gray, um, you build them up in layers and they end up just looking gray and they, color, they cover the uh, whatever color or pattern you have underneath. And they also, you can see the little bits of um, uh, kind of glitter that, that's inside the paint. So I started, as, um, Matt, my husband had just come, I, I was kind of frustrated because I was trying to get, replicate this and I've been trying these rainbow paints and he just come off a bus and he said you should um look into nail art because there were these girls on the bus in front of me and they were showing off their manicures to each other and one of them had this kind of like rainbowy holographic look on it and I said hey that's a good idea actually I wonder how they do that so I went and got my nails done for the first time ever um, and talked to the women there and they showed me these different powders and stuff that they use um which I have used for some things but I didn't use them in the end I then I, I just went onto YouTube and down a whole kind of YouTube hole um, and found there are these transfers you can get, which you um, apply to the nail. You, you kind of put a base, a kind of sticky base coat on, and you apply it to the nail and tear it off, and you get this rainbow look that just sits directly on top of the pattern underneath, just like the snakes. And so, yeah, it, that, that it kind of informed the, the creating of the work, but then it also made me think a lot more about um, veneers and about um, adornments and the way that we embellish our own bodies and maybe add hair extensions or nail um, extensions or paint our nails. <laughs> um, and, and how I was looking at social media a lot and seeing people using, I, I've seen people that I'd only seen maybe a few months ago, looking suddenly 10 years younger and realizing they're all using these filters. And I, it, I started thinking about that behavior in the context of the animal kingdom and how um, snakes, the patterns and the markings that they have on their bodies are, are for very similar reasons. They're to sort of to fit in, to blend in, to camouflage, or sometimes to allow a particular um, allow a particular idea of them to prevail, like the fact that they might be toxic when they're not, because often the, the skins they mimic more toxic breeds sometimes with their markings so that they put off predators, but actually they're completely harmless. Um, and I was just thinking about that in the context of the way that we uh present ourselves and how actually it's an extremely natural thing to be doing um all these things that we think of as being quite unnatural like nails and hair and actually it's very natural to be kind of dressing yourself up in that way or trying to um uh fool people would you say that your income stream is constant and what would you advise people on getting their businesses and whatever they do out there no, it's definitely not constant at all. Um, far from it. Uh, and it's not always easy. I mean, even now, I, d I don't, I can never take anything for granted when it comes to showing or selling my work. I advise, it's very, I mean, the sensible advice would be to say, have something you can fall back on because there will be times when you won't be making money. And that is very sensible advice. The bad side to that is that I think that the thing that you fall back on can very quickly become the primary thing um, because we only have so much time and you know, we need time off. And I just found that whenever I was working on other things, I just found I couldn't really get my head space really right to be making work. And I found that a lot when I, uh, I so I had work consistently and then I had my first child about six years ago and I found, you know, that's, you know, it's not officially recognized as a, as a job but it's like having another job because all you know I'm, I was needed in an entirely different way for most of the time and then when I did get the rare moments in the studio I just 
trying to kind of switch my brain back into kind of artist mode was very difficult. Um, so it's such a difficult thing to advise because I think the world has changed a lot too since I was last asked that question. Um, I just think the main thing is you just have to work really, really hard um, and you have to give it a shot and it won't work for everybody. Um, but you're never going to know unless you really, it'd be better to look back on it and think, you know, I really gave it my best shot and think, oh, I was a little bit half-hearted about it. And um, you just really have to put in the hours. Um, it's not going to, no one's just going to discover you. and It's not just going to be handed to you on a plate. You really, really have to um, work very, very hard at it. And that's, that's the only way I've ever had success really is, is, is by sheer diligence. So in in that in that same sort of vein with the the, the selling of your your stuff, um, when when it comes down to however much you're going to sell it for, does that normally end up being your decision or the client's decision, or who does that like who does who who kind of I mean obviously they they, they pay for the cost of the mm. materials and stuff, but 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 is that more sort of do do you decide that and then they work off that or do they go okay here's what I'm willing to pay make something uh or how how would you say that normally sort of works um it, it depends what whether you're working to commission or not um i have had not not working to commission so you okay well then that would be between you and the gallery uh, um yeah it wouldn't be it would be nothing to do with the client the client will often ask for a discount and then you can decide whether or not you're prepared to give them a discount and galleries often do offer small discounts or bigger ones if they're buying more than one work um or if they put a particularly great place like a museum or something that you really want your work to be in um i think generally the for me if that was always something i i didn't know enough about that really going into it and it was all a bit sort of hit and miss but i think the, the main thing is obviously yes you want to cover your costs your time it's very difficult to to cost your time because what what are you worth it's I don't I don't sit down with a piece of paper and work out how many hours I've put into things, but I know roughly how much they've cost me to make. I know kind of roughly how long I've been working on it, and I want to make sure that at least I'm going to recoup that. Um, but then the more work I make, the more the easier it becomes in a way because you have a sort of bench. As soon as you sell one thing, you kind of have a benchmark, so you know, you know, I've sold something a certain size or. Um, additions as well if you're going to make something more than once then generally you make it cheaper uh, if it's a unique piece and you're never going to make that again then you can make it a little more expensive because um you know people like the rarity but i think the important thing is just to start realistically um don't i've known artists who've gone in really high and they've sold the work um and they've even gone higher and sold more work but and that was great but then suddenly one of their works would come up at auction and then it would not sell or it would sell for next to nothing and then they would at that point that's the kind of leveler when you're in an auction and it sells that's kind of your your market and at that point you know everything comes crashing down and then they can't it's very difficult to go backwards with, with sales figures um so it's better to start small and try and sell something because as soon as you've sold something then you've kind of you're not going to go beneath that anymore you're going to sort of stay around that mark and then and then if your work's popular or if um something's particularly rare or galleries kind of be working with you for a while then maybe you start to put it up gradually and so, so are there specific animals that are kind of weirdly expensive to 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 buy and then use. So, I mean, is there is like I don't know, like a so like a specific like sort of roughly price wise, I'd imagine some animals are cheaper than others. But is there are there any like specific animals that are just weirdly expensive? Uh, again, that would be more of a taxidermy question because I think a taxidermist would say 
I mean, if they were working with exotic animals or something, maybe again, it comes down to rarity. So I think if, you know, if you had a, I don't know, my most rare animals, you can't even taxidermy them because they're so, they're very strictly policed and well, yeah, you just wouldn't get a license for it. But, but yes, I think if it's something that you wouldn't find much from a taxidermist, then they would charge you more money for it. And if it's something that you could find easily that they would probably charge less for it. But that's not, I definitely don't price my work based on the animal at all. It's nothing to do with that. No, but like, with, more... like with the snakes and, and such, they're, you know, well, some of them are more native to the UK than others, but but so do they, like, isn't, isn't they, I'd imagine a snake would, would cost more to, do you, well, it, unless, of course, you found it or no. someone gave it to you, but then there's... Or if it's cast. Or if it's cast. Yeah, because they're often cast and they're not, I mean, none of them are native to the UK. Ones, I, they're... they're they come as pets generally or um yeah from breeders so they tend to be the same sort of four or five different breeds that i work with and no none of them are more I mean, it's to do with scale really because i use more materials and there's more time over the painting of them and stuff like that so no i wouldn't say one snake is any more than any other if it was just straightforward taxidermy then and i was paying people for their bodies which i don't often do so I don't really like to do that because I think it encourages so do you then do you then something get dodgy like friends and family just flogging dead pets at you sorry no. I know that I could have phrased that better <laughs> no. do you <laughs> no I don't really pay for them on the whole that's what I'm saying I yeah no exactly gen- so do you get friends and family just going have a dead ant like my hamsters just died oh I do see you want just to do offering, something actually, just yeah, I, to you, yeah. Uh, people always offer them to me yeah mm. unless they want to give it a burial or something then they generally offer it to me um and I just, I accept or not, depending on my freezer space and what I'm working on. But, um, you know, I try as much as I can to sort of tailor it to what I'm working on at the moment. So I contact, so I'm not going to get snakes through friends and family because I don't have friends and family who own snakes. But um, I just, you know, I contact breeders and rescue centers and stuff. And some of them aren't keen to work with me at all and others are much more open to it. And then they let me know if something dies. Mm. Yeah, I guess it's the sort of artistic formula that you're sort of asking questions about pricing um but yeah it depends on raw material which i guess would be the animal but then with with the uh the snake pieces it's it's a lot of work and labor that's put into like using acrylic paint oil paint iridescent powders and like uh different the different transfers so there's there's that i guess that an artist needs to consider yeah um I, that's i think the thing about a good artwork is it looks effortless and, and actually so much work goes into it uh, very often the, the ones that i exhibit that was offer for sale that they'll be i'll have made like five or six others that i just threw in the bin so there's a lot that leads up to the point that you've got that one work because you know when you when you're molding things molding is quite expensive you're using rubbers and um and fiberglass and stuff you buy a lot of different materials to do that and uh you know not all casts come out perfectly either so you, you you have to do multiple casts very often by collecting the animals one of the things you're doing is removing them from further contamination. Do you see it as a global goal or more artwork? They're not just lying in the ground and they can't be dug up just whenever yeah. you're actually putting them into an artwork. Therefore, you're covering it and you're not leading to any further like diseases or anything spreading from the dead animal. No, I, I mean, I'm not really using... Well, if I'm doing straightforward taxidermy... I'm just using the skin. So I, I, the body gets completely disposed of. I don't use any of the body at all. Um, I, build, I build an artificial body and put the skin over it. And the skin is effectively, 
uh, like leather by the time you've finished with it. So it's um, it's not it can't rot. It's, that's not going to happen unless it only rots if you you've done a very bad practice and you haven't removed the fat from the skin or tanned it. Um, so there's no risk of contamination. And and if I'm doing snakes, I, I'm I'm molding them so I'm and casting them so I'm there's none of the original snake left in the artwork at all. Um, would you would you ever consider working with with other parts of animals, so bones or whatever else might be within? Um, like you know, you get those sort of weirdly like you, you know, you get the sort of so 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 at home I've got uh, in a sort of glass case like a, a vulture skeleton, and it's it's put together with like wire, and and so if I did want to, you could kind of move it or have it doing something. Um, and it is, it's like an actual skeleton. So would you ever consider, you know, you, you, you know, you were talking about your love of the kind of cyclical structure of stuff. So you could, you could have like a kind of skin on one side and then the skeleton on the other kind of interacting. Is that something you would, you would ever consider, you know, working with other bits? Um, yeah, I'd consider working with any of it really. I mean, it's just... I've worked in the past. I made these drawings of birds' nests out of the cremated remains of the birds. So I've, I've, I've kind of, you know, that I guess that's got bone parts and fragments and stuff in. Um, I, I wouldn't rule anything out. Uh, really, I sort of see my work as like, like I'm on some sort of path. I have absolutely no idea where it's going. But every time I go to one artwork, and I finish that one it kind of shoots me off in a different direction and then another and then another and another and I'm just sort of joining these dots up and it's very difficult to predict what I will do in the future because I if you'd asked me 10 years ago what I'd be doing in 10 years I would never have guessed that it's what I'm making now so um yeah I, I wouldn't rule out any materials at all I love material I'm fascinated by different materials I love discovering different ones and um yeah I'm open to all options really if you weren't casting animals, what career path would you see yourself in? I don't know. It's difficult. Sometimes I do think if things aren't going very well, I kind of have a momentary panic and think, what on earth could I do? How could I like translate my skills? Um, I mean, I would have, I love architecture. I sometimes think if I'd started all over again, I could have studied that, but I can't see myself. Be, I'm not, I just don't know if I've got the precision to be an architect. Um, I love food, anything involving food, maybe. What's your, what's your favourite style of architecture? Uh, I love brutalism. I was going to say, I can uh, see you making some brutalism yeah. with your yeah. work. Yeah. Also, you is that, are your walls concrete or are they just painted grey or what's the... Uh, they are actually pigmented plastic. Oh, nice. Okay, so you can yeah. see the sort of brutalism yeah. in the yeah, structure there, yeah. Yeah. I said you like the sort of Barbican flats and stuff like that. I do, mm. yeah. My grandfather lived in one when I was um, a child. Yeah, um, no, my he, he was grandfather. A, he was a vicar. I yeah. oh, really. Yeah, well, he was the he was oh, the funny. first um, like chairman of the Barbican, so that was. Oh, okay. Free flat. How long ago was that? Uh, when it opened after in, my grandfather. In like the sort of eighties, seventy. I don't know when the Barbican okay. opened. Okay. Anyway, yeah, um, that, that so so yeah, that's yeah. architecture. Nice, cool. Yeah, I sometimes wonder if that like subliminally has affected my taste. <laughs> Bit of that sort of Stalinist kind of, you know, brutalist architecture. Yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, I'm, yeah, that's, I guess that would be my favorite, but I, I like lots of different things. Cool. I can appreciate the, the beauty in all kinds of design. Mm. Would you ever consider releasing a book? A, a, like an art book? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would. Um, I, just, I, I don't think I'm probably there yet in terms of the 
the amount of work that I've made or that I'm happy with. I'd be happy to wait a little longer and um, make some more work first. I'm not in a rush to do that. Um, but yes, that would be, it'd be a lovely thing to do. You know, it's nice to sort of like stop at some point and look back and see things kind of pictorially and you can kind of see your progression. And, and it's rare to do that because the artworks that I make, they tend to, they either sell or they go to galleries or they're, they're not all here. So I don't have much artwork in the studio. So you never really see everything in one place. Um, and also, you, you, you said you, you went to um, university to do literature, English literature. So would you, would you say you have a, a favourite author or, or someone who inspired you, not, not necessarily in, in your current work, but just in your, your, your life as a whole, or, or inspired you to pursue your career of choice? I wouldn't link it to literature at all, actually, oddly. Um, I can't. I would be lying if I said, if I, I could throw out some names of books and stuff, but it, I don't think so, no. I really, um, I think I, um, I just think I'm a very visual person. Like I, I think in kind of images and like I'm much more, I find, I, I, I write sometimes, but I find it, it takes me ages and I like bite my nails and I get really kind of, I just find it very difficult to kind of. Focus. Translate. Yeah, just to, even talking about my work, I find quite hard. I have to sort of practice and write it down. And then, you know, just, I, it, it only, if it sounds natural, it's probably just because I've said it a hundred times. Um, so no, I think I'm much more of a visual person. What would your dream art school consist of in terms of facilities, curriculum, teaching structure? <laughs> and if you could give one handout, one takeaway for the student in whatever form, like a Google document or a, or a piece of paper, uh, what would that be? I, I'm a very practical person. I think I, for me, I'm, I'm, I, I prefer to kind of stew on my own ideas rather than get too bogged down in that when I'm making my work. I mean, I, that's not to say that there's not kind of concepts behind things because there, there definitely are, but my favourite part of my job is the making of the work. I always think of myself as like in two roles as being like, the employer and the employee and the employer is the one who has to make all the decisions and who has to decide what you're making and why you're making it and how you're making it and that's the kind of stressful bit when I have to sit down and think like why am I making this and you know is it is it worth it is it going to mean anything to anyone else and really just try and kind of interrogate that kind of the ideas behind it and then I become the employee when I'm just turning up to work and I'm just making everything's been decided and I just come in and I'm and I basically tell myself, right, today you're doing this, this, and this, and I just get on with it. And that's much more relaxing to me. So if I was going to give any kind of handout, I, I'm still not sure I'm understanding this question, sorry. Then it would be a much, it would be a kind of practical guide to um, to making, I guess. And to, I, I think I, I, I can't really talk about art colleges as I haven't been to one and I don't, I certainly haven't been in one recently. So I'm only basing it on what people have fed back to me. Um, and I do think it's great to sort of talk and think about ideas and, and, alongside the practical stuff. But yes, I think uh, my dream art school would be much more, um, well, it would just be full, full, of, full of tools and full of materials and uh, there wouldn't be too much emphasis on health and safety other than the kind of, you know, <laughs> instructions as to how to, to use the tools safely. Um, and I would just be able to mess about with materials and just 
see what they do and test them to their limits. Um, yeah. yeah, that sounds good. It's one of the most exciting things about teaching as well, because you've got a group of students that are working on something that you're showing them, but then you're all, whatever amount of students you got, you might say you've got like a dozen students, there's like a dozen people all interpreting that process. And that's what's so exciting about it, I think, because they're all taking their own angle to that process. So it's like yeah. collaboration, but like 12 artists in one go. It's really good. Um, if I could just go back to what you were saying earlier, would you say that you enjoy being, would you say that you, pre you prefer to be either the, the employer or the employee once you're kind of... Well, I find it more relaxing to be the employee. Yeah, I, I, to be honest, I think, I'm, I think I like both. Um, but I definitely find it more relaxing. I think if I was just a full-time employee of someone, I would probably want to break away and make my own decisions. But um, I don't find, I find it stressful. It's the hard part is being the employer because, uh, you know, the buck stops with you. You're the one who's making the decisions. And if it all goes wrong or if it's not a success, then that's, it's on you. Um, yeah, I, it's quite, it, sometimes I just, I, and I have kind of decision fatigue where I'm constantly saying, well, should I do it this way or that way? Or there's just so many options. And I just want someone to tell me, this is how you're doing it. And then I can just get on with it. When you're creating your work, and do you listen to music? And if so, does it affect the outcome of the work that you create? No, I'm sorry, boring answer, but I don't really. I very rarely listen. I have the radio on occasionally, but um, I'm really lost in my thoughts that I don't often even take in one. If the radio's on, I'm often not even, I find I'm not really taking it in or listening to it. So do you interesting. Um, work in silence in that case? I think you're at yeah. one with yourself when you're in silence, but then with music, then you draw inspiration if you lack it. That's a bit about. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes if I'm doing a very repetitive task, like something, I know exactly what I'm doing, or I'm like removing bits of paint or something, or painting something that I've done a load of things. At the moment, I'm working on something where there's 24 components in each sculpture, and they're all the same. So I'm doing the exact same thing over and over again. Then if someone will, I'm not, I'm, I never sit and I don't know anything about podcasts. I don't know what, what to listen to, basically. I can't, every time I go onto the podcast app, there's just way too much stuff. I can listen to you now. I need recommendations. And then if I have one or two, then I might put on a podcast or something and have that when I'm, when I'm doing something quite mindless. But yes, if I'm making decisions, I don't generally have anything on. This is more of a, a, a statement than a question. <laughs> and, and I was, I was, I, I, I was just having a look at your um, Wikipedia page on my way in this morning. And, and I read a thing that said that you, basically people who complain about the stuff that you do, you referred to them as, 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 as childish, right? Because of, of their, um, you know, their, their, their not understanding of what you do. But doesn't the fact that people are getting upset about the fact that you are turning these dead animals into things that still look dead, but aren't necessarily, you know, as dead as they may want. Does that mean you're doing your job right? If if people are complaining about it and going, oh, God, no, these animals are too real. When, 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 you know, that's, that's kind of the whole goal, isn't it? Like, isn't, isn't that sort of what people were complaining about? And then... Yeah, I don't know. I don't remember that, that quote. I'm trying to think what I would have been referring to. Um... It was probably, it might, maybe it was something to do with the lack of respect thing or something. Or yeah, it was saying know. that you didn't respect the animals, but but you clearly do respect the animals because you're giving them a, a new lease on life, right? By turning them into art. Well, I think I'm trying to honour something that's already beautiful. Yes, I, I mean, they've kind of done the work for me. I can't really add anything to it and I definitely can't um, improve on it. Uh, I don't know. I, I just think that, yeah, art 
if I was just to draw a very beautiful picture of a rose or something, then I guess it would be fairly universally liked. It's hard to sort of feel much, you know, a strong emotion attached to something that's so... Um, and so do you then want to elicit strong so emotion guess, out of people? Or? I mean, I'm certainly, I'm not, I don't set about to do that. But at the same time, I think that good art, the, the art that I love, is, tends to have, you have some kind of a visceral reaction to it, and that's not always good. And sometimes I, I don't really like a piece of work at the beginning, and then I'll sort of almost come around to it because it, I, I start to enjoy the feeling maybe that it's giving me. It's just to, to feel, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I suppose, you know, to be, to, to be eliciting some kind of feelings. I'm not trying to upset or offend anyone. I, I think that would be... Sorry, no, I wasn't trying um, to imply that, if that was how that was no, coming no, off. No, no, I didn't think, no, I, no, I, think, I, think I, I didn't think you were saying that, but I'm, I just mean that I... Yeah, I'm not certainly not motivated by that, but I think um, yeah, it's just to be getting getting a feeling out of someone is yeah. I suppose it's, it means you, what you're making isn't completely boring and it's being noticed, which is I guess the point. <laughs> okay, that, that's um, been thank great. you. Yeah, thank you. So thanks for listening to Artcast season three, episode one, where I was delighted to be joined by Polly Morgan and Indigo Farah from our Fashion Diploma, and Evelina Yakaliva from our HE Access to Creative Industries. You can check out more of Polly Morgan's work at polymorgan.co.uk, which includes a bibliography showing all the books that informs her work, a shop, uh, works, and documentation from various exhibitions. Thanks very much for listening again, and join us next time where we'll be joined by photographer Martin Park.